I know some of you are trying to take notes, and so we're going to help you um, in uh, a couple of days. We'll, we're recording these messages. We'll post them on our website. That you, can, you can access them. It's uh, uh, www.gbcob, stands for Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield, .org. Before we get going here uh, with our, our second part, somebody asked me a question. I thought it was a great question. Um, I use the word corporate worship a lot, and and I understand that can be confusing. We're not saying the church is a corporation. Corporate is just simply a word that's based on a word that means a gathering of bodies together. So corporate worship is as opposed to my individual worship. That what I do in my prayer closet, what I do um, when I'm sitting on a cliff somewhere observing a sunset and loving the Lord, corporate worship has parameters to it, whereas my individual worship has to do with how I live my life. So I just wanted to clarify that term. I want to start with a summary, and it's a, it's a lengthy one, a summary of what corporate worship, when we gather together, is. And I'm going to end with the same paragraph. I'll just read it to you slowly. This is something I've put together through just what we find in Scripture. The church gathers as redeemed people to respond to God in respect and awe, to confess sin and be assured of continued forgiveness, to express thankfulness to God in prayer, to praise Him in song, to enact and remember the gospel story, to hear and respond to the preached word of God, to hear the scriptures read publicly, to fellowship with the saints in corporate expression to God, to reenact the gospel through the Lord's Supper, and to visually demonstrate salvation through baptism. So that's what corporate worship is. What I want to do now on how the scriptures drives our worship, I want to just show you four things. We want to do the history of worship in scripture, the basis for worship in scripture, the attitude of worship in scripture, and the practice of worship in scripture. So we'll start with the history of worship. We're going to just kind of take a broad brushstroke overview here. Let's talk about before Mount Sinai, before the law was given to uh, Israel. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve enjoyed immediate access to God. They walked with Him. They communed with Him in the Garden of Eden. But now after the fall of man, after the fall into sin, immediate access was no longer available. Now they needed mediated access. They needed somebody to stand between them. And through a sacrifice of animals, number one, to cover their bodies, because now they were ashamed, and also it was to substitute for their immediate death, Adam and Eve were shown the cost of sin. God killed animals in front of them, so that they could see what it costs to pay for their sin, death through the shedding of blood. What about Abel? We talked about him earlier. Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was accompanied by faith. Abel went out of his way to please God while his brother Cain was performing religious duty, not in faith. How about Noah? After the flood, Noah built an altar and he sacrificed to God. Now what was his sacrifice about? It was an expression of thankfulness and gratitude for his mercy and for God's power to save him. It was Noah's submission to God's will. How about Abraham? In Genesis 12, while he's still named Abram, he made an altar to God. This was a response to God's revelation to him. His response was to worship. It was an expression of gratitude and devotion to God for for calling him. And Abraham also worshipped by 
being told by God, go sacrifice your son. And he worshipped God by being willing to do this. He demonstrated that worship involves completely relinquishing your own will and doing that which is God's will alone. How about Moses? The revelation of God in the burning bush caused Moses to respond in humble worship. When Moses demonstrated God's power to Israel and God's intent to save them, they responded as well in worship. And of course, the Passover, this is still before the law. The Passover was the rejoicing of deliverance from bondage. And, and it was central. Uh, central to the Passover was the sacrifice of the lamb, of the Passover lamb. And of course, this prefigured Christ, right? For 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So that's before Mount Sinai. How about the worship of God from Mount Sinai forward? I want to spend time talking about uh, the, the tabernacle, the, the, the big tent, which then would eventually become the temple. This was The tabernacle was a clear reality of the presence of God with Israel. And it had two purposes. You ready for this? It was to reveal God's holiness, and it was to conceal God's holiness. It did both. It revealed God's holiness in that God had, had brought to the people a way for them to meet with God. And it concealed his holiness in that there were certain places you could not enter. You could not see the holiness of God. Access was carefully governed by the outer court, by the holy place, by the, the most holy place. And of course, you know, Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the temple and the tabernacle. Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt, literally in Greek, tabernacled among us. That Jesus is the presence of God among us. Well, I want to just spend some time going through the elements of the tabernacle. And I want to show you that, that, that worship of God has remained the same. It just looks different in many ways. And just show you the continuity between Old and New Testament. There was the high altar. This was the place of sacrifice. This is where the animal was offered. The altar was an immediate and a perpetual reminder that entrance into God's presence demanded sacrifice. It was based on blood. No one could come near to God without atonement being made through the shed blood. And then there is the laver. That's a word that just means a sink, basically. It was the place of purifying and, and washing from the frequent defilements that happened in the life of um, in the life of the believer in God. In the Old Testament, it was for the washing away of the blood that got on your hands when you sacrificed and earthly defilements. By the way, in, in many of the sacrifices, when you brought an animal to be sacrificed, you didn't just drop it off to the priest and say, well, let me know when you're done. You did the sacrificing. You took an animal that you knew. You placed your hand on the head of that animal, imputing your sin, so to speak, to that animal. And then you grabbed him around the neck and you took a knife and you slit its throat and you bled it out. You had to do it. And you went to the labor and you, you washed your hands because it was covered in blood. In the New Testament, Jesus demonstrated in John 13... The principle of post-regeneration forgiveness, meaning that you are saved, but we still have a responsibility to come before the Lord with pure hearts as, as family forgiveness, we might say. How did he do this? He washed the feet of the disciples. Remember what Peter said? Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, wash all of me. And he said, I don't need to do that. I'm just washing your feet. That's just the defilements that happen in walking through life. In the tabernacle, there was also the light. In the first room, the, the large room, the holy place, there was a lampstand with seven lamps of oil. 
And these were to light the way to the most holy place, to the presence of God. You walked into the larger room, to the holy place, and it was lit up. And the reason was so you could see into the entrance where the presence of God dwelt. In the New Testament, what did Jesus say? I am what? The light of the world that reveals the way to the Father. How about the table? Over on one side was the lampstand that lit the large room, the holy place. On the other side was the table. And it held 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And frankincense were poured on top for, for a sweet aroma. It made it smell good. And it was replaced weekly. The bread was offered in thanks for the provision and for the, it was a reminder of God's provision and his grace um, to Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the bread that has come out of heaven. That he is the provision of God. He is the one that we must, as, it, as he put it once in John 6, we must eat his body. In other words, we must fully take in Christ in order to be saved. He is the bread of life from heaven. How about the altar of incense? In the tabernacle, there was an altar of incense. It was a wooden altar, probably about the size of this, this little pulpit up here. And it was covered in gold. And it was used for intercession in prayer. It was a, a prayer altar, in other words. Coals from the high altar were put there. Now remember, the high altar is where the animal was sacrificed. And then there would be coals, hot coals. And they were brought to the altar of incense and placed there. They were sprinkled with frankincense and blood was put on the horns of the altar, on the four corners. Now what is this? The coals, the sacrifice that had been made on the big altar were now brought to the altar of incense so that my prayers are made to God based on the sacrifice that opened the door for him to hear me. Covered in blood, representing the effective answered prayers of God. And prayers on behalf of the people were offered by the priest before the the most holy place. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is called the great high priest who makes intercession for us based on his atoning sacrifice. Now it's not the coals of the sacrifice of an animal. It is his own body. It's not the blood of an animal. It's his own blood. It's not frankincense given to a, an animal. It is the one who was given gold and frankincense and myrrh who offers himself as the one who intercedes for us. Then there was the Ark of the Covenant. This was the, the, the centerpiece of the tabernacle. It was inside the most holy place. Inside the Ark was the law, revealing uh, good and evil and punishment for violations. On the Day of Atonement, blood was sprinkled on the covering of the Ark to make atonement for violation. The New Testament equivalent to this, Romans 3.25 tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, propitiation. It means that he has satisfied the wrath of God against us. That he has made that okay. He has taken care of God's righteous indignation. That's the history of worship. Worship hasn't really changed. It's based in sacrifice. It's based in blood. It's based on doing things right before the Lord as per his prescription. But let's talk about the basis of worship. And I've alluded to this a number of times already. There's one basis for worship. Worship requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice. One writer said, Sacrifice is at the center of worship as the basis and expression of it. Now why is this? Well, worship of God is halted by sin. 
A sinner cannot worship God. An unholy being cannot worship a holy being, not in, not in spirit, not in truth. People are unholy. We're unpure. We're, we're unclean before holy God. And so there must be a sacrifice to pave the way to worship a holy God. Leviticus is kind of the pattern that God presents in order to facilitate holiness and remove impurity from his treasured people so that he might enjoy covenant fellowship with them and us with him. For people to commune with God, atonement for their sin has to be achieved, and it has to be achieved by means of sacrifice offered from a heart of faith, a heart of worship. If you read through Leviticus sometime, use a red pen and underline every time you come across the word holy or holiness. You're going to have 125 marks because worship is all about approaching a holy God. So, the sacrifices in the Old Testament and the New Testament fulfillments, I want to just kind of go through these for you. In the Old Testament, there was the purification offering. This was offered as worship. It was the very first sacrifice you brought in the, in the worship year. It was to cover defilement and unknown sins from previous weeks and months. It, it, it spoke to the removal of sin and impurity. The offering had to be accompanied by, listen, confession of sin. You didn't just bring an offering. The worshiper, as I mentioned, would place his animal, his, his hand on the animal's head. He would confess his sin, then he would slay the animal. So you're standing here before the priest with your hand on the animal and your knife in the other hand. And you say, I've been unfaithful to my wife. I have, I have been rotten to my children. I have cheated my neighbor. I have done this. I have done that. And the priest would say, is there anything else? Yes. And you would continue. Is there anything else? No, I've confessed my sin before the Lord. Then you would slay the animal. It was based in sacrifice. The priest would catch the blood in the basin and use it for intercessory prayer on the altar of incense. Forgiveness of sin was dependent on confession of sin. We put it this way. Forgiveness was based on the shed blood of the animal and a sacrifice without confession was worthless. It was just the murder of an innocent animal. Well, we have a New Testament Equivalent, our position, according to Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the doctrine of justification, that God has given you what was due Christ and gave Christ what was due to you. When Christians prepare to worship, though, what we do is we confess our sins with faith in the cleansing blood of Christ. First John 1, 9 tells us this. This isn't salvation forgiveness, as I've already mentioned, but it's the cleansing of daily sin, and it's the fundamental starting point in the worship of God for preparation to worship. There's the reparation offering from the word to repair. The reparation offering. This was a demonstration of true repentance as a condition for forgiveness. In other words, if a worshiper had defrauded someone else, he had cheated his neighbor, he had done something illegal, he had to pay the defrauded amount plus a fine at the sanctuary, a fine of 20%. And it was said that, truthfully so, confessing a sin, even with the appearance of contrition without trying to make things right against the person whom you'd sinned, was a sham. God did not accept that worship. As I've already mentioned, Jesus taught in the New Testament that worshipers are to be reconciled when possible to others before engaging in worship. I had a guy in our church ask me a couple months ago, we were about to receive the Lord's table, and he, he told me, I've sinned against this family member. And I said, then you, you're not welcome. Go give her a call and deal with that first. 
Then there was the burnt offering as worship. The burnt offering, this is the big one. This is the substitutionary offering. It was completely consumed on the altar uh, by fire. This signified total surrender to God and God's acceptance of the worshiper based on that sacrifice. This was necessary to maintain the right relationship of the worshiper to God. This is what removed the barriers to God. This is what freed worshipers to commune with the holy God. In the New Testament, one writer explains it this way. The atoning death of Christ has not only brought us salvation, but also continues to provide sanctification so that we may enjoy continued fellowship with God. The principle is the same in the new covenant as it was in the old. No one can draw near to God in worship apart from the blood atonement. Then there was the dedication offering as worship. The dedication offering, this was an expression of gratitude in response to the fact that you've been forgiven. It was, it was a joy-filled dedication. It can include um, fine flour. It can include olive oil, incense, baked bread, a basket of fruit. Whatever you wanted it to be. Now, you say, wait a minute. You're contradicting yourself. Cain brought fruit and God didn't like that. No, Cain refused to bring blood. We can bring what we want before the Lord as an offering to him. We sing praises because of the blood of Christ. Has already paved the way. It was intended as a token or a memorial indicating a person offered themselves and all that they had completely to the Lord. Well, what's our equivalent today? It would be, as some have done, uh, it would be somebody coming to me and saying, I'm so filled with joy at the gospel, I feel the desperate need to give something. I just need to give something back. And so we go through ideas. Well, what do you want to give? In the New Testament, of course, Jesus was the greatest dedication offering of all. He offered himself to the Father, fully prepared to do the Father's will. Hebrews 10 says he was the dedication offering. Then there was the peace offering as worship. The peace offering, now communion with God has been secured through sacrifice, through confession. The peace offering, listen to this, is not to make peace with God. That's already done. The peace offering is to celebrate peace with God. Every one of you were born at war, at enmity, against God. You say, well, no, I was kind of neutral. No, either you're against Christ or you're for him. Romans 5 says you were born an enemy. This is celebrating the fact that God has made peace with you. It involved a communal meal, which was taken from a special sacrifice of sheep. Now, in, in the atonement offering, in the burnt offering, the sacrifice was consumed. Everything that you have is his. Nothing that you have is good. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're nothing. We're burned. But this offering, the peace offering, the animal was slain, and then you had a party. You ate of it. You made a meal. It was a celebration. What is the equivalent in the New Testament? The Lord's table is a remembrance. It is a, a, the community of faith celebrating the fact that we are at peace with God through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And of course, there's the giving of physical possessions as worship, right? I'm not taking an offering, so you don't have to worry about that. In the Old Testament, this is everywhere. At one time during the year, if you were a law keeper, you would tithe. You would give 10% of what you had made. Here's a surprise. Second time during the year, you would give 10% again of what everything you had made. Not since the last tithe, but everything you were making throughout the whole year. 
We're up to 20% so far. The third and the sixth year of the seven-year cycle, you paid another tithe for what we might call a poor tax to help those who are less fortunate. If you do your math, every three years, you're paying approximately 23 and a third percent of your income. Animal sacrifices were made three times a year. Major sins to deal with, uh, to deal, if you had major sins, you had to bring more animals. Vows and free will offerings were given to declare love for the Lord. One writer said this, One simply did not think of going before the Lord empty-handed. You didn't come to the Lord and say, Look, it's me, that's all I had to offer. That wasn't good enough. Well, in the New Testament, we do have an equivalent, and it's not so easy to transfer the rules of tithes and offerings over to the church. It doesn't really transfer. A simple 10%, frankly, is a small percentage of what an Israelite paid. They paid 23 and a third. We're not obligated under the law of Moses, but the principle of giving is the same. It, the principle applies. As Christians, you've been permanently purchased by God. If you're owned... What does that mean? That means God gets to do with you what he wants. It means that all that you are, all that you have, all that you make, all that you possess belongs to him. Yes. All of our time is God's. All of our talents are his. All of our possessions belong to him. Can I put it this way? When you give, we always say, uh, we use the phrase, we're giving back to the Lord. And I think that's a, an accurate phrase. It's not so much that you're giving to the Lord as that he's letting you keep something. Okay? That's really what it is. The, the Christian's giving is an acknowledgement that we owe everything to Christ. That's why giving is part of worship. Now certainly, of course, Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the culmination of the Old Testament atoning sacrifices. He is the sacrificial basis for New Testament worship. John 1, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, sin of the world. He said that Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom for many at the Last Supper, Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. He said that he, that he would shed the blood of the covenant. He said the new covenant is in his blood. In the book of Hebrews, all the important Old Testament categories of thinking on this subject, all of them, sanctuary, sacrifice, altar, priesthood, covenant, all of those concepts are embodied in Christ. And so, does worship still... Is it based solely in sacrifice as it was in the Old Testament? Yes, but now it's based in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Believers have access to God through sacrifice. And I think that that has been forgotten in today's worship. It costs somebody... Let me put it to you this way. You're going to come in here and you're going to enjoy this gathering together. And you're going to offer prayers. You're going to listen to the word of God as an act of worship. You're going to sing songs as an act of worship. How would you like it if for you to get in that door, somebody had to die outside the doorstep to let you in? That is in fact the case. Every time we gather corporately for worship, before you start getting too focused on emotionalism and on me, 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 and boy, I'm really blessed. I, my, 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 I, me, 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 my, my, my. Somebody died to let you in. Never forget that. Alan Ross says this about the sacrificial basis of worship. He says, true worship is sacrificial. It costs. It costs our Lord his life on the cross as the perfect sacrifice that restored us to full communion with God. Thus, our worship focuses on sacrifice in many ways. We serve God sacrificially, not to obtain mercy, but to demonstrate our gratitude and devotion to him. 
Because he created and redeemed us, we owe everything to him. I want to talk about the attitude of worship. The attitude of worship in the Bible, and the way I want to do this is just give you all the major words that the Bible uses for worship. In the Old Testament, the main word used for worship is hishtakoah. And it means the bow yourself down on the ground. It's not talking about just an attitude. It is talking about physically getting on the ground to worship. Exodus 4.31 And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and hishtakoah. They worshipped. They fell down on the ground. Another word for worship in the Old Testament is, is kavod. Now, kavod means to be weighty or to be heavy. It's often translated as glory or it, the verb form is to glorify. It expresses the fact that God's kavod, his weightiness, his heaviness, the might of who he is, demands an acknowledgement, an, a, a response, an appropriate getting down, hishtakoah, on your face before this kavod, this weighty, glorious God. Psalm 23, 22, 23, rather. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Meaning, acknowledge to him his weightiness. Psalm 66, 2. Sing the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. In the New Testament, the major words used for worship. And you might think, well, it's going to really change now, right? Proskuneo. You know what proskuneo means? It means hishtakoa, to get down on your face before God. It's used in the New Testament primarily to speak of prostrating yourself and, and almost every time in an act of worship. John 4, 20-24, Jesus said that we worship in spirit and in truth. And there's sort of a transformation that you don't necessarily have to physically get on your face. He speaks, though, of the accompanying attitude of bowing your heart before the Lord. Matthew 2, 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to proskuneo, to bow down, to worship him. These are the kings from the Orient who would worship by bowing down. Then there's the word pipto. Now you think things have changed now. Pipto means to fall down and to prostrate yourself before something. And in fact, it's often used right alongside proskuneo. The two go together sometimes. Uh, Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. Sometimes you see these words put together. It's essentially, literally, proskuneo and pipto, I fell down to fall down to worship. There's an attitude of absolute humility and abject understanding that God is holy and I am not. Then there's the word latruo. Latruo is service to God. This is it brought, this expands our definition. It means to serve, but it's often translated to worship. It's used by Greek writers to refer to the obligations of a slave to his master. Matthew 4.10, Jesus spoke to Satan. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you, latruo, shall you serve, shall you worship. Romans 12.1, this is probably the most familiar you are with this word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual latruo, your service, your worship. And then there's one last word, uh, sebo or sebamai. It means reverence or respect. 
Acts 18.7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper, a respecter, and one who held God in awe. So am I making my point that the attitude of worship all through scripture is always the same? It's not one of generating false emotion. It's not one of, of having a party. It's one of falling down before a holy God. That is the attitude of worship. Now, I want to add this. Worship can generate wonderful emotion. And I want to tell you some of the emotions it can generate. It can generate grief. True worship generates grief over your sin. It generates grief over the fact that I came to church and I yelled at my husband a half hour before. It generates sorrow over the fact that no matter how hard I try, I will fail the Lord somehow today. It generates gratitude in that all those sins that I'm grieving are covered by the blood of the cross. It generates relief. Put it this way, worship is the ultimate whoo. It is the ultimate I am forgiven. And certainly it generates joy that I'm part of the family of God. I was an enemy of God and now I'm his friend. How is that? First Peter says that angels don't quite understand this. Ephesians says that angels don't quite understand this because they don't know what it means to be saved. There are certain songs in the book of Revelation that only the saved can sing because only we can sing the songs of salvation. It does generate emotion. But I do want to say this. The attitude of worship in the Bible of being bowed down before the Lord is not necessarily connected to warm, fuzzy emotions. Let me give you an example. Job chapter 1. God allowed Satan to kill all of Job's children and to take away all of his possessions. What was Job's response? Job 1 verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and got mad at God. Is that what it says? No. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Do you think that Job came to worship with warm, fuzzy emotions? No, he worshipped in tears and in anguish of the situation of his life. We worship in abject humility. Well, let's finish up by talking about the practice of worship. It took us all morning to get to this part, but we had to lay the foundation first. And we're talking about our worship together as we come together and worship, not talking about other, other venues, your personal time with the Lord. That's another topic. There are some scripturally prescribed uh, aspects or, or parts to our worship. At the top of the list would be the proclaimed word of God. The proclaimed word of God. Colossians 3.16 says, the word of Christ, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And to me as a pastor and to those who in, in this responsibility, 2 Timothy 4.2 tells us, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As I preach the word, we are worshiping because you're taking in the word of God. And if you are a worshiper of God, your life will change as a result of this. That is worship. That's Romans 12.1 worship that I'm a living sacrifice. We worship in thanksgiving. 
in thanksgiving. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You mean, as a Christian, I have everything I need the moment I was saved. I have all of God. I have all of eternity set before me. Yes, you have it all. What does that make you feel? It makes me feel thankful. It makes me feel gratitude. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we express thankfulness to God and that's not necessarily just generating emotion. It's saying, thank you for my salvation. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for Daniel, Michael, Joel, and Julia. Thank you for this and thank you for that. It's gratitude. Worship involves prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. What do you do in a corporate setting when we're all together, when one person is praying? What do you do? You pray along with him. And you pray and you, and if somebody says uh, in prayer, help us to be focused on the gospel of Christ, you're echoing this, help me to be focused on the gospel of Christ. If somebody says, help me, help us to take in the word of God in a meaningful way, you say, Lord, help me to submit to your will as revealed in the word. We're praying is worship. 1 Timothy 2.1, first of all then, this is speaking, by the way, of the gathering of the church together. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then, of course, what we historically have limited worship to be, another element, just one element of worship, is praise. This is speaking of our corporate gathering, gathering together. Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Psalm 150 says, praise the Lord, praise God in the sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness. We praise the Lord. We don't limit worship to saying it's just praise, that is an element, it's not all of it though. How about this one? Edification. Edification is an element of worship. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Before corporate worship, after corporate worship, you pull a brother, a sister aside and you say, I have seen that your life doesn't match what you say. Would you consider walking with God in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called? Hebrews 10.24 and 25 tells us, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. One of the reasons we gather together is to be edified and to have the accountability that I am coming together with a group of believers who love the Lord, and I am accountable to God for this. I, I need to come with a confessed heart and need to come with humility. And there's a sense of camaraderie that we have together, that we are not just coming together to create some emotional, unique event. We're coming together as the huddle so that we can get out in the world and play the game with righteousness. That's what we do. We edify one another. Water baptism. This is an element of our worship. It's commanded by the Lord in Matthew 28. It's to be public. It's an act of acknowledging the Lordship of Christ in your life and identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection. And then finally, the Lord's table. The Lord's supper. This is commanded in 1 Corinthians 11. Listen. The Lord's table is the center of Christian worship. Because it is the one element that Jesus said, do this 
When you gather together, it is the center of Christian worship. It is a reenacting of the gospel. It is a reminder that I hold a little piece of bread to remind me that a real man came from a real heaven as a real God and died a real death and his real body bled. What I see in this cup, the real blood that should have been mine bleeding. The Lord's table is the center of the worship of God. Well, let me read my summary statement again. I think it will make more sense to you. The church gathers as redeemed people to respond to God in respect and awe, to confess sin and be assured of continued forgiveness, to express thankfulness to God in prayer, to praise Him in song, to enact and remember the gospel story, to hear and respond to the preached word of God, to hear the scriptures read publicly, to fellowship with the saints in corporate expression to God, to reenact the gospel through the Lord's Supper, and to visually demonstrate salvation through baptism. Would you stand with me as I read Psalm 145 to close our time together? Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who loves him, love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Lord God, you have made creation and made us so that we might be worshipers. All that we do is to be focused on giving glory and honor and praise and magnifying your name and your name alone. In our worship, might our prayer be the same as the intent of John the Baptist, who said that Christ must become greater and I must become less. May you make us worshipers who worship based in Scripture and Scripture alone. Because only that is glorifying to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you.